Hello lovely listeners and thank you for tuning in to episode 20B of Exocast, the only podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. What a month we've had here in the Exocast studio. Uh, we have a very special uh, ExoCup episode today in which we chart the highs and lows of the inaugural ExoPlanet Championship and discuss how the eventual winner, super hot, super popular, super earth, Kepler-10b, came out on top after a nail-biting photo finish against runner-up GJ1214b. But before we get into that, some intros. My name is Andrew Rushby and I'm a NASA postdoctoral fellow in astrobiology at NASA Ames Research Centre and I'm joined as always by my esteemed co-hosts. I'm Hugh Osborne, and I'm a postdoc at the Lab of Astrophysics in Marseille. And I'm Hannah Wakeford, and I'm a Geoconi Fellow at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. Right, so we should we should start discussing the Exo Cup. It was a very enjoyable thing to organise, I have to say. I'm sure you two agree with that as well, all right? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess we should start at the start and talk about how we selected the planets we decided to go for. I mean, you probably recognize a lot of them from our adopted planets because we went straight to the adopted planet page and picked all of those out to go into the, the 32 initial places for the first round. But Hannah, you also went to a few researchers and asked for their own favorite planets, is that right? Oh yeah, I kind of wanted to take a crowdsourcing approach for this. Um, and I went around and privately, essentially, uh, via many different either social media messages, text messages, you know, Skype, email, uh, everyone that I, I could think of and just simply ask the question, what is your favorite exoplanet? No other information. Um, and I got loads of answers back. Um, so I made a list of all of those answers and I had the list of all of the our adopted planets and the overlap was huge. Um, so every planet where I got three or more answers went into the cup. So it was ones where people had multiple different people had selected them, which made them really stand out, I think. That's why we had such a tight competition. I mean, there were a few maybe that we missed. I think one of the most obvious was 51 Peg. No one mentioned it. Not a single person mentioned it. Yeah. Like that, is, I, I asked so strange. many people that purposefully, I was like, I know which one you're going to pick and then nothing. I got something random. I'm like, oh, okay. That is surprising. It was good yeah. fun, actually, learning that. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess that 51peg isn't easy to study and, and therefore not many people have, have actually studied it and, and wrote papers on it. So it kind of, even though it has that historical... Uh, I think like, I think beta pick really kind of took over in people's minds in, yeah. in terms of something to really follow up and go with um, for for that kind of... So the, the first thing that they go with is beta pick instead of 51, but... Yeah, it was a surprising one. There was a couple of surprises that weren't in there, but I mean, you have to pick 32 out of 4,000 planets, so you can't do it. You can't yeah. do it and get everything right. So I think we, I think this is a really great selection, and I think it worked out perfectly for the type of competition it is. It's a knockout competition, um, so it's a tough one. And and we should note that the ones that didn't make it through, or at least some of them, have made it into the expansion pack of the cards that we'll get on to talking about later. But I think that those include Kelt 9 and uh, Coro 7 and 55 Cancri E, which were other kind of 
um, a few planets that and and micro lensing planets as well that people ask for once it's started. But yeah, free um, floaters yeah, as well in there. Yeah, but they'll have their chance uh, separately, I guess. Yeah. Uh, if, if if anyone wants the cards, they're online, so we can you can run your own Exo Cup. Yeah, the funny thing um, about those ones is that a lot of them just end up with the unknowns. I mean, we with the cards, which was really important. Andrew did a beautiful design on those that you have the information that you need and the generic information that you have or want for a planet is on there and most of them you can't get that information so it's really tough to make that a fair competition in terms of the information we're providing the voters so then what happened when we had our 32 planets was we randomly put them into the bottom of this bracket, as you might have seen on, on, our, on our Twitter page. And, I mean, there was no seeding. Some people asked about this. We didn't thought, sort of think about putting the best or the most likely planets to win up separate from each other. And this did lead to a few pretty key battles in the first round, which I think is good. It spread out the um, the interesting fights across the, the five different, six different rounds. Yeah, I don't think it would have been a good idea to uh, to already start putting our personal biases on these in terms of seeds. I think I think it was the right approach. We did have, as you say, a few questions about it, but it was by far the most justifiable approach, I think, for the first for the first ever Exo Cup, anyway. It would have been so easy to put a lot of personal bias on that, and we wanted to re- we wanted to remove that completely. Um, and the only way to do that is essentially they're they're pretty much numbered in terms of when they were published as a discovered exoplanet or confirmed exoplanet and then from then on it was just a random number generator to reorder them um, and match them up against each other so that it, it it didn't have any you know human emotional attachment biases or or any biases against you know direct imaging planets going up against each other or not going up against each other or you know tiny planets and hot jupiters and all of that so there's it really was just a random smattering i think that made it so much better well as you say that some of the well one of the most interesting matchups in round one was gj 1214b versus beta pick right which actually got some of the i think the highest votes in round one um nearly 360 odd votes so that was um that was, you know, a, a head-to-head between two very popular planets that would go on to do very well in. in yeah, the rest dumping Beta Pickout was a real upset, I think, because that that was, you know, one of the re- most interesting direct imaging planets. But going up against a a fan favorite like GJ twelve fourteen, it just, it, it, you know, it, it was out. Yeah, I think that made it more exciting. <laughs> yeah, just to maybe add something to like how the competition was run. So what we did was we had 24 hours uh, where these polls were open on Twitter, four polls a day in the first uh, couple of rounds, and then we went down to two polls a day for the quarterfinals and the semifinals, and then obviously the final was just one poll on the 16th of November. Um, and yeah, the, uh, the the planet with the, the most people voting for it would go through. And um, yeah, that, it means pretty simple as, as, as Cups goes, right? There's, there's not much more to be, to be said than that. So yeah, so the first round... Um, what what happened? So we had sixteen matches in the first round. Obviously, I think for the most part, the the most popular pl- or the the most obviously like the favourites won for the most part. I think, although I I was quite sad about the Pulsar Planet PSRB uh, going out in the first round against Trappist One H. But then I guess Trappist One is a, a big fish, so that's to be expected. 
Did you have any, you guys have any uh, personal preferences for which ones went through? I, I really loved the competition between Kepler-10b and HD-80606b. I thought that's where it really started oh, yeah. kicking off. That's where we started getting kind of more people voting. It's where we started getting more interaction from the community, just talking about the science behind these planets. It wasn't just a, oh, I know that name. It was a, this one's interesting because. And I, I loved that that, that was the one that really sparked it because I was really I was really rooting for A0606b at the start. Um, I, yeah, think, it's too, a, I totally. think it's an absolutely fascinating planet, but I'm really glad of that kind of competition, just really pushing both of them forward and uh, battling it out. So I think that one was quite surprising how well uh, this giant eccentric hot Jupiter was doing against a, a well-known planet. So I thought that was a surprise. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those, it's the, the luck of the draw, really, because HD 80606, which I also really enjoy um, studying, it would have, it had enough votes to go through in almost every other round. But because it was against Kepler 10b, it just, it just, it just fell straight yeah. out. <laughs> it's funny how that happens. I was quite upset about J1407b, this big ringed. Uh, I wasn't surprised, though. Planety thing. No, I wasn't surprised, yeah, but I was disappointed. It's, it's very obscure. I did like I liked the design on our card, and I'd, it was the only ringed planet we had, right? So I was yeah, like, oh, it no. was. It's the only um, ringed planet we could put on there. <laughs> and I believe it's the yeah. only planet that had a knitted mascot. I don't know if you guys saw the uh, the pictures in the thread, but it has a, a very cool little little knitted mascot. Um, I think well, there's a there's a knitted brown dwarf, and we had some brown dwarfs on yeah, there. So maybe those. Yeah, maybe I'm con- I'm confusing it. I'm confusing yeah, it with a knitted dwarf, brown dwarf. Yeah, my bad. Yeah. It's- Little BD is the knitted BD, the, the brown dwarf that comes to the conferences. Yeah, he's got clouds so and everything. It's very so cute. cute. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's also a knitted GJ1214 that Zach Berta Thompson tweeted. Um, and that was his own first and only tweet. Oh, that's it that's done <laughs> and a fantastic one at that <laughs> well, there we go just for the exit uh, we are honored <laughs> but yeah i think i think round one um as, as you mentioned really started started uh, the community interest and also started providing these interesting little anecdotes and tidbits that maybe you wouldn't read about in a paper or wouldn't be emphasized in a paper like um your office mate alex um hume he mentioned that uh, uh 806 um, 06b was observed during Valentine's Day, for example, which made it kind of a, a romantic Valentine's planet, which I thought was quite a cool little anecdote to bring to it. It just brings some insight into the discovery process and the, it reminds us that these are human beings that, that are involved in these discoveries and who will turn up on Twitter to vehemently defend their planets themselves. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. But that, that really brought us to a really fun and quite intense round two where there were there were some strong knockouts uh the percentage kind of difference between the planets increased considerably in round two so it was interesting how things that fought so well in round one just suddenly became obsolete yeah so wait so who, who what was the biggest uh 209 versus kepler 138d and then 189 so the so two and HD two hundred nine four five eight B and HD one eight nine seven three three B like the most studied of the hot Jupiters that there ever has been, uh, really kind of took on their competitors in round two and got over sixty percent of the the votes scores in each of those. So it was really it was really interesting to see that. But the the biggest surprise 
And it's going to be, we're going to be mentioning this so much because it's continuous throughout the competition. Is Kepler-10b knocking out HR8799b, which is a directly imaged multi-planet system. You've got videos of these planets actually moving around where you can see the planet. And I mean, Kepler-10 just took took them out. And I think that really surprised a lot of the direct imaging community um, and a lot of people that were following us. I mean, that was such a close one because it was like until the last second, it, 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 HR 8799 was winning. It was winning by a couple of percent. And in fact, I think what Twitter does is it, it hides what people vote in the last minute. I'm not sure why, but it certainly did this for this because I was watching it with intent uh, and, and about to like prepare the, the, the results saying that HR 8799 had gone through. And then suddenly it switched. And in fact, uh, I love the fact that um, Mark Marley, who who is a direct imaging sort of researcher, said that, uh, you know, it won by a nose despite a valiant effort by 10B. And, uh, <laughs> and, and then it hadn't. It was, it was quite funny. Yeah, there might be a, t- there might be a time delay on it. But um, yeah, I, I recall Hugh and I were in the uh, in the Exocast virtual studio, i.e. Facebook Messenger, so just discussing what, what we were going to do if it came out as a tie. I was at my leaving party and suddenly I pick up my phone. It's going crazy next to me. And I'm like, what is happening right now? Hang on a second. I have to wait. I have to sort this out. And I was just you guys on Messenger and then Twitter was going insane. I was hitting refresh. I was jumping between different twitter feeds that i have and i'm just like oh my god i can't believe this is happening and i'm sitting there surrounded by direct images going i'm so sorry i didn't do it (laughs) see when hugh described the setup of the cup he made it sound very straightforward and yes the process was straightforward but it was physically and emotionally quite difficult (laughs) to 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 keep track of all the votes and and all the threads and everyone's impassioned pleas to vote because of course we had to vote ourselves as well um, and I kept, I think I, I kept relatively neutral uh, throughout. Um, and I don't think there was, a, you know, we had any, um, any need to keep, to keep neutral. I know you guys were, were champing for your, for your planets. I did not keep neutral. No, you didn't <laughs> did not keep neutral. Keep neutral we, and we didn't have to. But, uh, you know, we had to be involved in both sides of, of the vote. And it, it, was, it was emotional. It was, it was, it was emotional times. <laughs> it's sad to see many of the of the planets leave us, um, but you know, there's always next year. <laughs> I found fa- I found that I would often vote for the underdog or the the, the planet that I thought wouldn't do very well. That's because you're then British. But then I judged it so poorly that it would it would it, it would win by a, like ten percent or something often. Right. So I think I don't know. <laughs> this is why towards the end I just started voting later and later in the competition because I'm like I don't know how. This is going. I don't know which one I want to vote for. All of oh, my. What do you mean do you... you don't know how this is going? Well, you can just go on the the Exocast uh, Twitter and see exactly. No, how it's... but I mean predictably, <laughs> I didn't know how it was going to turn out in the end because they kept switching. Yeah. They kept switching around, and and all of my planets had left in the first round. I mean, the hot Jupiters didn't make it through. I was just gone. So it's okay. There's love for them still. And I wonder um, if people did that towards the end, um, voting, you know, waiting to vote a little bit later when they saw the threads developing, when they could read a bit more about um, you know, various factoids or see GIFs, so many GIFs. Uh, I know it's GIF, but I'm not saying GIF. It's, no, it's I'm saying GIF. GIF. It, Thank GIF. you. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, on the other side of that fence. Oh, cause... well, you're wrong. Let it slide. Two, two to three in the Exocast <laughs> yeah. studio. You're wrong guess. again, because we, we we guessed on the final and you got that wrong too as well, Hugh. I think you're just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> oh. 
I think so. Round two was really categorised by well, it's basically a Kepler graveyard if you look at it. All the Kepler planets went out, apart from ten, um, which surprised me a lot. One eighty six F going out was was quite quite a surprise to me to Wasp forty three B, which um, went on to not do very well in the next round. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with Kepler one eighty six F, it's the first confirmed to, uh, rocky planet in the habitable zone. Um, so one of Kepler's kind of uh, poster planets. So it was surprising to see it go out. And even the the Kepler one eighty six F Twitter account even appeared uh, in the threads and, and championed for itself. Which that's uh, true. It was the first time we had a planet lobbying for itself, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, ineffectively, unfortunately. Ineffectively, <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, as, as you say, lots of Kepler planets spit the dust in round two. Wow. Moving on to the quarterfinals, then we got. Uh... We had some very strong knockouts. Two hundred nine HG two hundred nine four five eight B lost it completely to Proxima B. It was a sixty one percent Proxima B to thirty nine for two hundred nine. So that was that was okay, a really yeah. strong win there. And the same thing again uh, for GJ twelve fourteen B versus Was forty three B, which was a sixty eight to thirty two percent knockout of Was forty three B. So. That one was uh, really interesting to see. The first two in the quarterfinal, however, were, were much closer. They were they were 189 versus Trappist 1H and then PH1B, which was the the first planet hunters uh, discovery. And it's in actually in a quadruple star system, so it's a really fascinating planet, but they didn't have much lobbying for it from the planet hunters team, which is a shame. Um, and that got knocked out by Kepler-10B. So it was... Uh, it was a less tight quarterfinal, surprisingly, but we did get a huge number of votes in our quarterfinal, so uh, we still had the interaction. Yeah, we lost all the giant planets in the quarterfinals, which is surprising, really, because they are the most studied, but all we had through were the, the super-Earths and the mini-Neptunes and the uh, terrestrial planets. Yeah, and the small stars as well. I think apart from Kepler-10, which is around a sun-like star, all of them are around M-dwarfs, all of them are around very small stars so we lost all of our our sunlight our normal our normal stars sorry i don't mean that i do mean earth that. bias i totally mean yeah that. they're 80 percent of the galaxy hannah come on whatever <sighs> I, just, I can only sigh at this point this is where the biases are allowed to creep in it's over i can't do anything it's fine i'm cool with this it's been a week i'm good i'm good <laughs> so I mean, at the quarterfinals, you know, once once they'd been run and the semifinals were decided, I still was not confident on making a prediction for the for the winner, uh, even with just the the four planets left over: Trappist One H, Kepler Ten B, Proxima B, and GJ Twelve Fourteen B. They were all extremely strong performers. I had no no idea which way to go. I mean, still looking at it now, I would have thought Kepler Ten B was the weakest of those four because I mean, one of the reasons I didn't expect Kepler Ten B to go far was because. We know of almost a thousand hot super Earths that are similar to Kepler 10b, and I mean they're all they're all Kepler planets as well. So Kepler 10b is or Kepler is the demise, I thought, of Kepler 10. But uh, yeah, it wasn't wasn't to be the case. So I guess we haven't actually discussed Kepler 10b itself, right? And why maybe it ended up being so popular, and that is the first confirmed rocky exoplanet, right? So around very close around a sun-like yeah. star. You could argue Coro 7b is... Yeah, is, we had a lot of people arguing that Coro 7b was, was the same. So in the expansion pack, actually, what's really interesting, and if I put my bias on it, really annoying, is that there are three planets that people were really lobbying for um, to go in the expansion pack. And they're all identical. 
They're all really, really <laughs> hot, rocky yeah. planets, really close to their star, and they just change in and temperature. And they all kept ten. And they were all the firsts of something or other. And the thing is, <laughs> the difference is the the only thing that I saw that was different that kept the ten stood out for me is that it's so much hotter than the rest of them. It's just incredibly hot. It is very likely that the entire surface is a molten liquid, which is insane. That's we're talking about over twenty five hundred Kelvin, right? Yeah, it's an incredibly hot. I know a couple of people who were voting just on how many flames the thing had. So it did have the most flames. <laughs> had so. all of the flames. Um, but it's funny that you, you're right. There are lots that we've discovered like this, but Kepler's ten really stands out as being this seminal kind of launch into the discovery of these smaller planets with the Kepler mission. Um, and that is just a huge importance to exoplanet studies as a whole. And it certainly helped when um, Natalie Battaglia, who was the Kepler project scientist, was weighing in heavily on social media with uh, with many of her, her followers and doing doing some great outreach and, and education, but very strongly for Kepler-10b. Her followers and her family, right? I think that yes. I saw uh, Natasha tweeting a few times as well. We should stress that Natasha being an astrophysicist as well, she's, you know, yeah, she she's studies entitled. the She studies actually Trappist-1, so she was actually very torn on that one. So uh, I think everybody was very much getting together and getting behind the tweets and, and getting that information out there. And it was really in this... It was in this semi-final when we were seeing these poems started cropping up and they, they were started by Laura Kreiberg, actually, um, who was lobbying for GJ1214, which she studied. Um, and we, we had this just then flurry of people making up verse to support their planets. And I thought that that was a really creative nice art meets science meets everybody just really thinking about things so i thought that was uh, a twist that i had not expected turning up there yeah i really i really enjoyed them as well like laura kreidberg's is uh there is a small planet around proxima sen whose promise is rated a 10 out of 10 but turn not a blind eye we know just m sine i it might be a neptune my friend fantastic i think that's fantastic yeah i don't know if you guys have a favorite as well well, as as the competition progressed, they got more and more plagiarised from the Bard himself. So right. <laughs> it seems a bit unfair to compare limericks to Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I have some favourite tweets that I, I've got, which aren't aren't poems that really kind of just made me sit back and think. And I think that happened to a lot of people. And we got some great responses from people responding to other people's tweets and going oh that's great tell me more uh, there was one there was one situation where you know we're lobbying for this planet and people were like i don't know which one to vote for please tell me i want to learn and that's exactly why we invented this cup in the first place it's it's what it was all about so i think that was really hilarious what was helped by was the fact that Twitter decided that halfway through the competition it would increase the number of characters you could have. So the, the poems got longer and longer as we went through the competition, as Twitter went, you know what, the Exo Cup needs more. Was that, was that midway? I, I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get those 280 characters for some time. I felt, I felt a little left out, but it's not like I used them anyway. <laughs> Brevity is the soul of wit, of course, so keep them short, keep them sweet. 
I mean, you, I, I did enjoy as well how, you know, everyone was tweeting about their knowledge and their, their ways they'd studied these planets. But I also felt at times it was very heated. You know, people, there were there were probably fallings out over this. And, uh, oh, there definitely and, and I did wonder and worry if we'd created a monster here and if, if we were dividing the community rather than uniting it. I but, don't think uh, we were dividing it. I think it was very, very heated. And I know a couple of people who got told to calm it down um so that's interesting in itself but i think that it was it's a really good way like there's a lot of people in the community who are talking that hadn't talked before um and it was a different way in which you have to convey that information and it's really hard to do sometimes so i think it it it's all this is why i wanted hindsight this is why we need to wait and calm down and think about it because it in the moment it's just so intense and hilariously intense because it shouldn't have been um and then now you can think of it and it was good fun and it got everybody talking so i think it's a i think in the end it's a great thing well actually i was quite surprised by um by the fact that the 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 showdown between kepler 10b and trappist 1h in the semi-finals wasn't closer than it was you know it was 53 47 expecting it to be a little close trappist 1h a very popular planet um, well, the whole Trappist system. Um, I should say we chose 1H. Why did I choose 1H? That was one of our adopted planets. And at the time, yeah. at the time, I recall we didn't know anything about it. And I was like, okay. It's the only sub-Earth-sized icy planet that we know of. Right. So I think it's it, yeah, yeah. pretty interesting. Far more interesting than Kepler's MB, in my opinion. But <laughs> right, A representative of the, of the Trappist system. Because I know there were people like, oh, why didn't you choose G or D or F or one of the others? Um, and I think at the time I chose it because we just knew the least about it. And it's it's an interesting an interesting world. But it didn't fare that well against Kepler-10b, despite its popularity, which was surprising. Well, I think what's surprising is that Proxima-b didn't did exactly the same against GJ-1214. GJ-1214 got through with 53% of the votes. And Proxima-b had the whole of ESO tweeting behind it. Um, and it just our nearest, our nearest neighbor, our nearest neighbor planet couldn't, it just couldn't didn't perform make it that through. Well. No, I, I think GJ twelve fourteen yeah. surprised me the most in this competition. Yes, me too. I would never have I, I eyeballed it at the start as a potential runner-up, but maybe that's my my inherent inherent biases there, and one of the surprises of of Exo Cup. Yeah, exactly. But then that that moves us towards the final where we had Kepler ten B, small hellish rocky world orbiting a sun-like star against GJ1214, a super Earth with super cloudy atmosphere orbiting a small M star. You couldn't get... Well, mini Neptune, let's be honest. Yeah, sure. To be honest, actually, whenever I quote something, I'm like, it's a mini Neptune or it's a super Earth. They both mean exactly the same. Yeah, they do. They do. Mini Neptune means it has gas and super Earth means it has... Less gas. Okay, yeah. yeah I can they, see that that's exactly. Tricky. And we can't tell you right now exactly how much less gas it has because it's so cloudy. We don't know. So it's it's an interesting kind of match up there. They're very different planets. And I thought that really came to head um, with some of the poems that uh, David Charbonneau, who worked on, uh, who actually started the MIRF project, which discovered GJ1214 was coming out with uh, a lot of poems, not just for GJ1214, 
but against Kepler-10. The smear campaign began. <laughs> oh, yes. I don't think you can call it a smear campaign when it's done in, in rhyming, you know, lyrics. Okay, it was much... eloquent smear, yeah. but... <laughs> I mean, I, I like this one. On Kepler-10, you'd burn your feet. Too much radiation and tidal heat. And without clouds, you can't be discreet. Vote for 1214. Everything you need to know about the, the shortfalls of Kepler-10B right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I like it because at the same time, one of the, the tweets that followed, because I hadn't decided who to vote for yet, because I just didn't know. I didn't want to make up my mind. And then a, a tweet that followed that was from Edwin Kite, who said, no self-respecting villain cites their base on GJ1214. Why wait for hydrodynamic escape to unshroud your hellish rock if you can vote for Kepler-10 today? Our Terminator, perfectly located for your manufacturing needs. Embrace the magma. And I was just like, yes, that poem has just sparked the perfect position for a evil lair. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I want. I'm going for Dick Kepler 10. That's where it turned Kepler around. 10, the lava world that's not definitely not an evil lair. Come on, I mean, you can have it both ways. Oh, <laughs> come on. Anakin lost it's all of his obvious. limbs on a lava world. Exactly. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Evil lair. That's that's where you set up the dark side. Perhaps on the dark side, right? As it is slightly locked, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think only our direct imaging planets aren't tidally locked. I don't know some of those Kepler ones. Actually, I don't know much about the Kepler ones. Yeah. I I mean we don't know, do we? No. Anything over ten days, we've got very little idea. So in the midst of the final, uh, Hannah, you said you were you were giving a talk. I was um, arrayed at a conference out in, in Laramie in Wyoming, which I'll talk about in the news, but in which um, the Exo Cup was very popular and um, there was lots of discussion and it appeared on many, many slides and you could, you could see the vote going back and forth. Um, so it was it was pretty stressful, <laughs> actually, trying to keep keep track on it of of the uh, of the vote itself and the outcome um, in the midst of all of that. Um, what about you, you, Hugh? Were you arrayed somewhere out of the way while no, this was all going on? I was just on? in the office. Oh. I didn't do much work, to be fair. Just well, <laughs> I did, yeah. Keeping an eye on on, on what was a very interesting final. So yeah, it all seemed to come to a head. I was absolutely stressed. Uh, I'd given a, I'd given my talk already, and I was sitting at the back of the room while someone else was giving their talk, and I was just sitting there with my laptop out and refreshing continuously. My hands were sweating. I was like, okay, I've got to get this right. I'll make both of the charts. I don't know what's going to happen. So I made both of the charts for which one was going to win. And I was just loading up the tweets. And I mean, I left blank spaces for for which ones were winning. So I was just so worried about getting it wrong because I just had no clue. And the, the person sitting next to me like messaged me and was just like, it's really close and I'm like I know <laughs> yeah and Twitter did not make it easy for us did it no it's 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 rounding to one the nearest decimal or you know the nearest round whole number of percents was not uh not helpful I don't think no if it's that close please put just at least one decimal place in there just one I know in the end I mean so we know that there were 648 votes in the end and we know that well, it can't have been half 50-50. So there was either a two, a four, or a six vote difference yeah. between the two. Maximum uh, the of two six planets. on that one. 
And of course, it did go to Kepler 10b rather than GJ 1214. But for a long time, that I mean, it, it moved back and forth in that final day, didn't it? it was, I had no idea. It was the last five hours it was stuck on 5050. Yeah, there were probably pulses as, as, as astronomers in time zones woke up at different times. Uh, and then the pulse spread across the world in, in terms of votes. Um, but yeah, it ended up as 50 50. Um, and it took, a li- it took quite a long time to decide which one was the winner, which it just highlighted for us in blue. Um, and, then, and then the tweets and the announcements went out on the back of that. And Kepler 10b wins it and our admiration for, for another year. I think there was a lot of very, very civil tweets after that. A lot of, well done, you know, good fight. Virtual handshakes. Condolences. I mean, it was, it was very, it was, it suddenly became very civil again. And I thought that was entertaining. (laughs) It's very easy to be civil when you've won. (laughs) No, I don't know. Or lost, I guess. There were were good winners and good losers. And a chance for all of us to just take uh, a breath and enjoy not setting up polls for t- another two weeks. Back to the real world immediately, though. <laughs> so, yeah, I think in, all in all, it's quite successful. I mean, we had over 5,000 votes in total, which was, you know, way, more than I expected, actually, way more. And the, the, final, um, the final poll was retweeted about 50 times and seen by thousands of people. So, um, yeah, it was uh, really quite spread quite far. Yeah, it would be nice to know how many... Um... How many folks who aren't or wouldn't identify as astronomers um, got involved in, in in the voting? I guess you know Twitter doesn't provide us that information. But one thing I know it did is get a lot of astronomers who weren't on Twitter onto Twitter, even if it was just a vote. I know that at least three folks who set up a Twitter account just to get involved because they kept hearing about this ExoCup thing and was wondering what it was. So inadvertently, Twitter can thank us for a couple more astronomers, uh, you know, public yeah, public scientists. You should get some commission, right? Right. There were a couple of uh, people that were not astronomers who were tweeting um, at us throughout the competition and were very grateful for the astronomers that did come on board and sharing all of the information. Um, and we got a couple of people at the end who, who were saying that they really enjoyed following the Exo Cup. Um, so I'm really happy with that. We definitely did have a number of people. Uh, for a start, 648 people voted in the final. There are not 648 people in the exoplanet community. Yeah, we're, we're a small bunch. Certainly not on Twitter. I mean, it's a young bunch of people, but it's, uh, it's not 648. So that's um, a nice indicator that we were definitely reaching out. And we can say that for all of the polls. I mean, we were getting hundreds of hundreds of votes in almost all of the polls. And uh, that certainly wasn't limited to just the exoplanet scientists. So I'm really happy about how we expanded that. Yeah, and I, I hope the, um, the fact cards and the, the threads would have helped um, those who weren't familiar with these, you know, for other people, rather esoteric names um, that you might forget if you're, if you're not super familiar with them, um, just to make, make their decisions, you know, a short fact sheet of, uh, of important tidbits and info. And if you want more, you can head to the threads to see the actual astronomers um, who discovered the planets, you know, battling it out. So a lot of a lot of great information and outreach there and i think that was the main success of this cup yes we might have fractured the community forever but at least we got some (laughs) great information out on twitter uh so we wanted to find out how much we had actually fractured the community and we've gone out and talked to a number of people in the uh, exoplanet community who got involved in the exo cup be it behind the winners 
uh, or if they were voting for someone who got knocked out very early on. So we had a chat and sat down with a number of people to see what they thought about the Exo Cup. Segway. So first, how did you find out about the Exo Cup? Well, I got a strange request asking what my favorite planet was. And so I asked, well, you know, what is, what's going on here? And the whole concept was explained to me. And then I saw it happen on Twitter and get started. So um, that's how I learned about it. I have this postdoc who has an office right next to mine. It's His name is Dr. Andrew Reshby. You Sounds might like have heard of him. <laughs> He's a really great guy, yeah. <laughs> so he was uh, busy in the office next door making all of these uh, exoplanet cards, like trading cards for exoplanets, and it was uh, becoming quite popular here in the Kepler Project office. I'm a follower and fan of the Exocast podcast, uh, so when it popped up in my Twitter feed, I was super excited. I thought it was a really great idea to generate some fun and interest around exoplanets. And actually, I had no idea how popular it would get. So well done, guys. I was totally selfish, and I nominated two of the planets I've worked on myself. HD 3167D, which I announced earlier this year on behalf of a large collaboration between the HiRes and HARPS North Precision Radial Velocity teams, and HAT P7B, a hot Jupiter I worked on a few years ago combining Kepler, Spitzer, and epoxy secondary eclipse measurements to examine the atmosphere. So both of the planets that I nominated were kicked out in the first round. So that showed me to be selfish. (laughs) But it seems a lot of people were being selfish and everyone had their little favorites for the exit cup. 51 area, uh, 51 area B. It's a direct imaging planet that was found by the Gemini Planet Imager um, Exoplanet Survey, which I'm a part of. Uh, so the planet I picked was uh, HD 80606b. Um, I've spent a lot of my career studying planets on eccentric orbits, highly eccentric orbits, because they're really fabulous laboratories for trying to understand atmospheric physics. Um, so it's always been one of my favorites because there's really nothing like it out there, um, and the opportunity exists to study it both observ- observationally and theoretically. So my planet was knocked out by Kepler 10b, who was the eventual champion. I might call a little shenanigans, but I had fun, you know, posting a lot of the research that I've done with HD80606B on Twitter, so people were learning more about the work that we have done studying this planet and what it's taught us. For me, it was pretty easy because Kepler-10b had such a history for so many reasons. Um, First of all, we saw this planet in the first 10 days of data with Kepler, and it's only 40% larger than Earth, so it was a very shallow transit, and we could see it by eye without any you know, complicated data processing. And so it was kind of at that moment, that was one of the early moments when I personally knew that Kepler was going to work. Not only does it have the transits that tell us what the radius is, not only does it have the Doppler uh, data that tells us what the mass is and therefore what the density, the star itself is also bright enough for astroseismology, so we know its star properties very accurately. It also shows a secondary occultation and a very slight phase curve. And that's what tells us that, the, that it's tidally locked and that the temperature difference between the day and the night side is very extreme. So there's a wealth of information there. It's a very special system. Uh, how did you feel about the winner of the Exit Cup and the final uh, as a whole? I really enjoyed watching all of the interpersonal dynamics at play as the rounds progressed the different exoplanet astronomers coming out of the Twitter woodwork to barrack for their favorite planet, 
the different strategies they used, the different emotions they appealed to. It was very entertaining and very surprising to see who really came out strongly. It was fun to see people out there talking about why they're so passionate about particular planets. I mean, we all have our own favorites, especially those of us that you know, do a lot of the characterization work because you just become so involved with very specific planets. Um, so it's fun to watch people go out there and talk about the, these planets, in some cases almost like they're children, and, and why they think they're so fabulous. I think, I think at, uh, at a very base level, astronomers are highly passionate individuals about their own science. And so at some point, the trash talking and stuff is, is fun. I was, of course, rooting for GJ1214b because, uh, again, this is one of those planets where I've spent a fair amount of time thinking about, like, what the heck is going on in its atmosphere? Um, but it was a good run, and I think you know you saw a lot of people coming out in support in both sides, and it was such a very, very close uh, win in the end for Kepler-10b. In academia, we have this affectation that our academic colleagues are like a family. You have your advisor, and your grand advisor, and your great-grand advisor, and your academic siblings, and so on. Anyway, when I moved to Harvard to start my first postdoc, I was working with Dave Charbonneau, who leads the MIRTH team, which discovered GJ1214b. In fact, I was there in Boston when the planet was announced, although I was working on a different project at the time. After that postdoc, I moved to NASA Ames to work on the Kepler project, and was there when the discovery of Kepler-10b was announced, led by Natalie Battaglia, who was one of my main mentors for the seven years I've worked on Kepler. So when the final came down to GJ1214b and Kepler-10b, and there was that photo on Twitter going around of Dave Charbonneau and Natalie Battaglia arm wrestling at the Habitable Worlds conference in Laramie, I actually had this like weird tension. It was like being the child of divorced parents. Like, mom, dad, please don't fight. I love you both. Please don't make me choose. Uh, and, you know, it was kind of gratifying to see how close it was at the end that, you know, they both tried really hard and they both got a lot of people motivated. Uh, but uh, just pipped at the post at the end, Dave. Well done, Natalie. The whole spirit of this is to teach the layperson something about astronomy and about exoplanets. So in every round, I tried to just share information, you know, scientific information about Kepler-10b. I didn't let it get emotional until the very last round. I was just about to call you out on that, actually, because I did share those those tweets about Bill Baruchy. You know, yeah, right. I do it for Bill. So do there, it was for some, Bill. there was some emotional right. heart, heart tugging there. So it was, it was all science we up did, to the We uh, did all science up until yeah. the very last round where we decided to pull on the heartstrings a little bit, yeah. And I think that's fair. I think that's fair, especially with the poetry that was coming out and the stuff that we've read on the, on the show yeah. today. Yeah. And, um, and David Charbonneau, of course, your, uh, the champion of GJ1214B, was giving as good as he got. So I think Yes. It was... Oh, man, he gave us a raise for our <laughs> he money. Did, didn't he? Yeah, yes, was, he did. And but... he was certainly pulling on the heartstrings as well. Kepler has has completely revolutionized exoplanets. I mean, it's made made our entire thinking of what, how many exoplanets are out there, like what kind of planets are out there. It's completely revolutionized that. So, in that sense, it's it's okay. It's perfectly acceptable that a, that a Kepler planet won. The fact that it knocked out HR eight seven nine nine is just ridiculous. But yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much again for the competition, guys. It was really fun. A big thank you to Nicole Lewis, Natalie Battaglia, Jesse Christensen, and Abby Rajan for talking to us here at the ExoCast studio. Well, other things ex- besides the ExoCup have been happening in the last month in exoplanetary science. Uh, lots of new planets, I'm sure. And Andrew's going to be at our international news desk to tell us all about it. Yeah, some other things happened. 
um, as you as you as you said, some notable discoveries, um, but none as none quite as exciting as uh, as Exo Cup, of course. Um, actually, I don't know if that's true. I'm going to start off with Ross 128b, which is uh, a new planet that Harps discovered uh, around uh, a, a very a very nearby star, uh, just 11 light years from the Earth. It's a mid M star, uh, Ross 128, uh, only about 20% the size of the Sun. Um, so people are excited about this planet. It's it's Earth size-ish, about 1.4 times its mass, maybe 1.1 times its radius, approximately. Um, but we don't really know for sure because we haven't got any transits of it yet. Um, it receives it receives quite a lot of, uh, of radiation from its star, uh, about 1.4 times uh, the amount of radiation that the Earth receives from the Sun. Um, and it is tidally locked because it's very, very close, just at 0.05 AU. So this is going to make it prone to, you know, water loss from the atmosphere, perhaps. People are arguing as to whether this is uh, an Earth-like planet in terms of its habitability or not. Um, but in terms of the, the pros for that, that side of the column, it, it orbits a very low-activity star. It's it's 10-billion-year-old red dwarf, which, unlike Proxima Sen and TRAPPIST-1, um, is a little bit quieter, it flares a little bit less. Um, but, you know, this also implies that the planet is 10 billion years old, which has implications for, you know, outgassing and tecton um, you know, any, any tectonic processes on the planet itself, which is required for an atmosphere. So it's, um, it's, I think the, the, the jury's still out um, on, to, on, on whether uh, Ross 128B uh, has an atmosphere or not, but maybe JWST can, can clear that up in the next few years. Well, I believe it doesn't transit, right? I'm pretty sure there's lots of evidence that says there's actually a Kepler light curve of Ross 128 without transits. So I think we uh, we know that well we know that we don't know that, that if there's an atmosphere <laughs> and that we can't find out. That's disappointing. Um, but nevertheless, maybe one for for Exo Cup next year, like a, a new card. Indeed, it's in our expansion pack. Oh wow, it's already in. Look at that, up to date and contemporary. Keep an eye out for that one in the expansion pack. Uh, other notable news, very notable news in my opinion, is the discovery of uh, Oumuamua, um, the, uh, which, which means uh, scout in Hawaiian, and this is the first known interstellar object to pass through the solar system. Um, and this was discovered primarily with data from the Pan-STARRS telescope and the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope, with follow-up observations from across the world, ESO's VLT, Gemini South, and Keck, and all of those confirmed a, a bizarre, elongated exo-asteroid. Uh, on a very eccentric hyperbolic trajectory that will see it being thrown out of the solar system again around 20,000 years from now. Um, so it would, it's probably been moving through interstellar space at, at quite a rate, um, but it was accelerated to like 100 kilometers a second or something uh, on its approach to the, on approach to the sun um, and now being hurled unceremoniously back out into interstellar space. Um, so it's not clear at this stage where it came from uh, or even how long it's been drifting in interstellar space but it's likely that the solar system is the first star system that uh, Oumuamua has encountered since it was ejected from whatever system it originated in perhaps billions of years ago I, I mean so one of the one, I think one of the theories is that it might have lost its atmosphere by interaction with other stars but I don't know if how, how plausible that is <laughs> yeah um it's it's difficult to i guess trace its trajectory beyond yeah what we can i heard someone say it came th from the direction of vega yes which is quite a sci sci-fi thing that's to, a humongous <laughs> area of the sky yes yes in it in, 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 with large error bars but 
Well, I mean, it, it's interesting. Well, physically, it's actually been described as, you know, in very typical science, unenthusiastic terms as unremarkable in terms of its composition, which, you know, when we're talking about the first ever you know, interstellar visitor to the solar system, describing it as unremarkable seems remarkably pessimistic. But anyway, uh, in terms of its composition, unremarkable. Um, but it's very interesting dimensions of like 180 meters by 30 meters by 30 meters, making it like a weird cigar or dare I say it starship shaped um, <laughs> shaped object um, which is pretty weird but apparently this might allude to how it was maybe formed or ejected from its system maybe in some sort of explosive um, collision perhaps that sent it uh, sent it out on its on its hyperbolic trajectory uh, and and gave it its its weird shape um, well apparently it's also possible I mean th- that you could just paint one half of a sphere in a certain way and, and give the same the same effect ah, we, i mean the reason we think it's so long is because of this this weird light curve where we look at the magnitude of it over time and it it seems to be tumbling and then in one orientation we barely see it because uh, we're looking kind of down the axis and then in the other orientation we see this much brighter thing because we're looking at it side on effectively but you can also do the same effects just by having like one really dark red side and one very light red side on the other so i, I mean or, or a combination of both is also another way you could do it. But yeah, it's, it's certainly a weird, like, <laughs> a weird shape or colour. Yeah, exactly. It's either, yeah, as you say, either a weird shape or a weird colour, or probably a bit of a bit of both. Um, but unfortunately, we're probably not going to be able to find out a huge amount more because we can't catch it on its way out. Um, but now that, we, you know, we know how to look for these objects, this might not be the the last object to acquire the IAU's new I designation, which stands for interstellar, which I think in itself is pretty sweet. So also announced this month is the selections for the JWST Director's Discretionary Early Release Science Program, which is a mouthful. And for those who aren't familiar with those, um, these are pilot studies that will take place within the first five months of JWST science operations immediately following the, the sixth month uh, commissioning period and these are going to be super important for making sure we can get the most out of the the prime mission when it gets going um, so before I actually you know mention this it's worth remembering that JWST isn't actually an exoplanet mission despite the fact that that's kind of all we talk about it for um, and you know there are actually other astronomers who want to use it for some reason you know for, to find stuff that isn't exoplanets but Anyway, um, there were 460 hours available uh, in total as part of this uh, early release science program. And exoplanets did very well. Uh, a large international team led by Natalie Batali and Jacob Bean, and including, of course, our very own Hannah Wakeford, secured an impressive 76 of those hours for transiting planet characterization. Um, and you know, this will hopefully culminate in the delivery of some spectra, some time series instrument performance reports, and even some open source data analysis tools that we can hit the ground running uh, when JWST goes online. Um, also worth mentioning is that Sasha Hinckley of the University of Exeter in the UK, who joined us for our direct imaging special, led a direct imaging concept that was awarded 39 hours of telescope time. So good news for exoplanets, right? Oh yeah, fantastic news for exoplanets in in the whole thing. I mean, they were only ever going to select 15 proposals. And the fact that we got so much time for exoplanets is absolutely amazing um, out of all of this. So it's going to be really exciting in the first few years of James Webb to try and understand these instruments and how we can use them even better in the future. Great stuff. 
Um, so as I mentioned earlier, I had the pleasure of attending Nexus's Habitable Worlds 2017 workshop, which was held at the University of Wyoming in Laramie this month. Um, I loved this. This was, you know, I'm slightly biased because I was helping to organize um, and I had a couple of talks here and there, but it was a great interdisciplinary conference that, uh, I mean, it opened with three talks about the carbonate silicate cycle, including one by me, uh, and then covered everything from galaxy, star, planet formation, to open access software development, to hydrothermal vent systems, uh, and included debates about the timing of the discovery of extraterrestrial life. Uh, just a quick summary, in a room full of pessimists, it was suggested the late 2060s, which was very disappointing. Um, and even had some acceptable conference coffee. I give it a 7 out of 10 for conference coffee. Ooh, I think Epsicon still had the best coffee so far. Like, that was a 9 out of 10 coffee selection, but good, good coffee overall. Um, and as I mentioned, ExoCup was a big hit there. Um, it appeared in several slides. We, you know, also had the primary cheerleaders for both Kepler 10B and, and GJ 1214B, and you know they took some some fun publicity photos, which appeared on Twitter as well. So um, it, it was it was a fun conference to attend. Um, you know, on a personal note, there was even a first uh, Reddit AMA and NASA TV panel session appearance for yours truly uh, as part of NASA's Living Earth Week, which was a lot of fun. Um, unfortunately, I did get stuck on the way out. On the Saturday, all the roads froze, like the two roads out of Laramie, Wyoming <laughs> were closed. Just, I couldn't, I couldn't process it almost. The two roads were closed um, and everyone was so chill about the fact that no one could get in and no one could get out. Um, but anyway, it made for an interesting end, uh, revealed something about my own personal habitable limits, which are pretty, pretty limited. Um, but I made it out and I had a great time and I hope everyone else, you know, who attended it as well. Um, so on a last note for news this month, um, a potential atmosphere on 55 Cancri E. So an interesting paper appeared in the Astrophysical Journal this week suggesting the possibility of an atmosphere on this world. It's a super-Earth world, an eight-ish Earth mass scorched hell world that whips around its late G-dwarf host star in like 18 hours or something crazy. So generally this just doesn't make for a great environment into which to, to cling to a layer of, of tenuous gas. But by analysing Spitzer phase curves, it was found that the heat distribution efficiency revealed by the eastward shifted hotspot suggested a 1.4 bar thick atmosphere was helping to move some of that heat around, um, you know, much more effectively than the assumed bare magma ocean. Now, personally, I don't, I don't know much about this, but I don't know, does this, does this fit with the, the general theory about these planets? Does, does this make sense? Looking at you, Hannah. <laughs> Hannah's shrugging. It might make sense. I think we'll probably need some, some follow up on that, right? I think it needs a lot of follow-up for that. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. There's so, there's so much we don't know about these and the sublimation that you would need for such a atmosphere to form and maintain uh, under such extreme conditions. It's, it's something that we need to understand and we need to keep following up and keep trying to kind of push the limits of the observations and push the, push the limits of theory. So, I, and that's what I think this planet's been trying to do that for a long time, and I think it will continue to do so. Interesting. And with that, that is the month's news. So, I'll throw it back to the studio. And this month, Hannah's going to be adopting a planet. And, I, and am I right in thinking it's one that we somehow missed adopting before? Yeah. So, because we have in our first ever podcast, Andrew adopted Kepler 10b, the champion of our Exo Cup. Uh, I thought it only appropriate it. that we. Are... <laughs> I thought it appropriate that we also adopt into our family the runner-up GJ twelve fourteen B, which we had somehow missed along the way. Now, 
I've never been the biggest fan of twelve fourteen, but I'm just you know clearly jealous that I never got to work on any of the flat data. Um, but like any good scientist, I am very very willing to be completely and utterly swayed by facts, and I think the Exo Cup really just kind of pushed that for me. It really impressed me all of the things that people were coming out with. So just to give everybody a little background on uh, twelve fourteen, it's a two point six times earth radius planet but it's 34 percent of the density so we're not a hundred percent sure whether it's completely gassy like a mini neptune or if it's got a large rocky core with a small atmosphere no clue it could have a really condensed atmosphere which is mostly water we don't know but what we do know is that it had over 60 orbits of hubble space telescope time to look at its atmosphere using transmission spectroscopy in the same wavelength band. So humongous amount of time spent just staring at this planet through a huge number of transits, which allowed them to get a really clear and precise measurement of this atmosphere. Now, what was actually found from those measurements, um, which was led by Laura Kreiberg, is that it's a completely flat, featureless, transmission spectrum, which means that through the different wavelengths, nothing is changing in terms of the relative radius of this planet to the relative radius of the star. So this suggests a number of different scenarios. And the most likely one is that the entire planet is surrounded by an incredibly thick cloud layer. And that in itself is really interesting. And one of the things that was pointed out in the ExoCup is that actually if there is a surface, none of the starlight's gonna make it through this cloud layer. It's gonna be immensely dark uh, inside this atmosphere. And that's really interesting because that's gonna affect the dynamics that are actually happening there. So based on these observations, which aren't showing us anything, you can work out a huge amount about the planet's atmosphere and a number of scenarios as to how the dynamics are, are working and how the radiation is actually going through the atmosphere. So that's really, really interesting. Um, and, you know, Laura Kreiberg, who I, I mentioned before, ran, led the paper on these observations, actually said that it's the same temperature as a pizza oven. So if you like pizza, vote for 1214. And people who did. Doesn't? I mean, that's people a great voted argument. for it. I think it's a fantastic argument. I mean, who doesn't like pizza? <laughs> but there's a, a huge amount um, that we want to understand about planets. And GJ1214 is actually around an M star. It was discovered by the MIRF survey, uh, which looks at four M stars and looks for small planets around M stars. The smaller the star is, the smaller the planet that we can observe. So this was the first one that was discovered by that team. And it was a really important discovery for looking for these planets around these M stars, as Hugh mentioned earlier, which are the most common types of stars that we have. So they're really important to try and understand the, the number of planets that are there. So 1214 really kicks off that area of study as well. Um, it's really hard to learn more about this planet, but we're certainly gonna try because of the type of star that it's around and because of the type of planet it is. We can actually look at it in the secondary eclipse, looking for its own thermal emission. Um, and we can only do that with James Webb, which goes out to the temperatures that we need to try and actually look at the, the planet's influence on that light. 
So we can learn actually a lot more about this planet in the future and a lot more about clouds and cloud formation. They're in fact doing studies here at the JHU labs to look at what type of materials might be forming these very thick clouds that we're seeing. So it's not only kind of sparked investigation into these M star planets, it sparked investigations into cloud physics, it sparked investigations here on Earth in the lab, trying to understand different formation pathways. So I think it's definitely deserves a place in our misfit bunch uh, of exoplanets. And a worthy runner-up. And a very worthy runner-up. I, I, I loved how how that it battled with Kepler-10 there. Well, thanks so much for joining us for another excellent instalment of Exocast. I, I, I mean, maybe I shouldn't call it excellent, given that we... Uh... <laughs> it's, that's for you to judge. Um, and we'll be back next month, but until then, you can check out all of our previous shows on our website, exocast.org, and on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Till next time. Bye. Bye.